Chapter Two, Part One of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gail Mattern. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Two, Up the Paraguay, Part One. On the afternoon of December ninth, we left the attractive and picturesque city of Asuncion to ascend the Paraguay. With generous courtesy, the Paraguayan government had put at my disposal the gunboat yacht of the President himself, a most comfortable river steamer, and so the opening days of our trip were pleasant in every way. The food was good, our quarters were clean, we slept well, below or on deck usually without our mosquito nettings, and in daytime the deck was pleasant under the awnings. It was hot, of course, but we were dressed suitably in our exploring and hunting clothes, and did not mind the heat. The river was low, for there had been dry weather for some weeks. Judging from the vague and contradictory information I received, there is much elasticity to the terms wet season and dry season at this part of Paraguay. Under the brilliant sky we steamed steadily up the mighty river, the sunset was glorious, as we leaned on the port railing, and after nightfall the moon, nearly full and hanging high in the heavens, turned the water to shimmering radiance. On the mud-flats and sandbars, and among the green rushes of the bays and inlets, were stately waterfowl, crimson flamingos and rosy spoonbills, dark-colored ibis and white storks with black wings, darters with snake-like necks and pointed bills, perched in the trees on the brink of the river. Snowy egrets flapped across the marshes. Caimans were common, and differed from the crocodiles we had seen in Africa in two points. They were not alarmed by the report of a rifle when fired at, and they lay with head raised instead of stretched along the sand. For three days, as we steamed northward toward the Tropic of Capricorn, and then passed it, we were within the Republic of Paraguay. On our right, to the east, there was a fairly well-settled country, where bananas and oranges were cultivated, and other crops of hot countries raised. On the banks we passed an occasional small town, or saw a ranch house close to the river's brink, or stopped for wood at some little settlement. Across the river to the west lay the level, swampy, fertile wastes known as the Chaco, still given over either to the wild Indians or to cattle ranching on a gigantic scale. The broad river ran in curves between mud-banks where terraces marked successive periods of flood. A belt of forest stood on each bank, but it was only a couple of hundred yards wide. Back of it was the open country. On the Chaco side, this was a vast plain of grass, dotted with tall, graceful palms. In place, the belt of forest vanished, and the palm-dotted prairie came to the river's edge. The Chaco is an ideal cattle country, and not really unhealthy. It will be covered with ranches at a not distant day, but mosquitoes and many other winged insect pests swarm over it. Cherry and Miller had spent a week there collecting mammals and birds prior to my arrival at Asuncion. They were veterans of the tropics, hardened to the insect plagues of Guiana and the Orinoco, but they reported that never had they been so tortured as in the Chaco. The sand-flies crawled through the meshes in the mosquito nets and forbade them to sleep. If in their sleep a knee touched the net, the mosquitoes fell on it so that it looked as if riddled by birdshot, and the nights were a torment, although they had done well in their work, collecting some two hundred and fifty specimens of birds and mammals. 
Nevertheless, for some as yet inscrutable reason, the river served as a barrier to certain insects which are menaces to the cattlemen. With me on the gunboat was an old western friend, Tex Ricard, of the Panhandle in Alaska, and various places in between. He now has a large tract of land and some 35,000 head of cattle in the Chaco, opposite Concepcion, at which city he was to stop. He told me that horses did not do well in the Chaco, but that cattle throve, and that while ticks swarmed on the east bank of the great river, they would not live on the west bank. Again and again he had crossed herds of cattle which were covered with the loathsome bloodsuckers, and in a couple of months every tick would be dead. The worst animal foes of man, indeed the only dangerous foes, are insects, and this is especially true in the tropics. Fortunately, exactly as certain differences, too minute for us as yet to explain, render some insects deadly to man or domestic animals, while closely allied forms are harmless, so, for other reasons, which also we are not as yet able to fathom, these insects are for the most part strictly limited by geographical and other considerations. The war against what Sir Harry Johnston calls the really material devil, the devil of evil wild nature in the tropics, has been waged with marked success only during the last two decades. The men in the United States, in England, France, Germany, Italy, the men like Dr. Cruz in Rio de Janeiro and Dr. Vital Brazil in Sao Paulo, who work experimentally within and without the laboratory in their warfare against the disease and death-bearing insects and microbes, are the true leaders in the fight to make the tropics the home of civilized man. Late on the evening of the second day of our trip, just before midnight, we reached Concepcion. On this day, when we stopped for wood or to get provisions, at picturesque places where the women from rough mud and thatched cabins were washing clothes in the river, or where ragged horsemen stood gazing at us from the bank, or where dark, well-dressed ranchmen stood in front of red-roofed houses, we caught many fish. They belonged to one of the most formidable genera of fish in the world, the piranha, or cannibal fish, the fish that eats men when it can get the chance. Farther north there are species of small piranha that go in schools, at this point on the Paraguay, the piranha do not seem to go in regular schools, but they swarm in all the waters, and attain a length of eighteen inches or over. They are the most ferocious fish in the world. Even the most formidable fish, the sharks or the barracudas, usually attack things smaller than themselves, but the piranhas habitually attack things much larger than themselves. They will snap a finger off a hand incautiously trailed in the water. They mutilate swimmers. In every river town in Paraguay there are men who have been thus mutilated. They will rend and devour alive any wounded man or beast, for blood in the water excites them to madness. They will tear wounded wild fowl to pieces, and bite off the tails of big fish as they grow exhausted when fighting after being hooked. Miller, before I reached Asuncion, had been badly bitten by one. Those that we caught sometimes bit through the hooks or the double strands of copper wire that served as leaders and got away. Those that we hauled on deck lived for many minutes. Most predatory fish are long and slim, like the alligator gar and pickerel, but the piranha is a short, deep-bodied fish with a blunt face and a heavily undershot or projecting lower jaw which gapes widely. The razor-edged teeth are wedge-shaped, like a shark's, 
and the jaw muscles possess great power. The rabid, furious snaps drive the teeth through flesh and bone. The head, with its short muzzle, staring malignant eyes and gaping, cruelly armed jaws, is the embodiment of evil ferocity, and the actions of the fish exactly match its looks. I never witnessed an exhibition of such impotent, savage fury as was shown by the piranhas as they flapped on deck. When fresh from the water and thrown on the boards, they uttered an extraordinary squealing sound. As they flapped about, they bit with vicious eagerness at whatever presented itself. One of them flapped into a cloth and seized it with a bulldog grip. Another grasped one of its fellows. Another snapped at a piece of wood and left the teeth marks deep therein. They are the pests of the waters, and it is necessary to be exceedingly cautious about either swimming or wading where they are found. If cattle are driven into, or of their own accord enter the water, they are commonly not molested. But if by chance some unusually big or ferocious specimen of these fearsome fishes does bite an animal, taking off part of an ear, or perhaps of a teat from the udder of a cow, the blood brings up every member of the ravenous throng which is anywhere near, and unless the attacked animal can immediately make its escape from the water, it is devoured alive. Here, on the Paraguay, the natives hold them in much respect, whereas the Caymans are not feared at all. The only redeeming feature about them is that they are themselves fairly good to eat, although with too many bones." At daybreak of the third day, finding we were still moored off Concepcion, we were rowed ashore and strolled off through the streets of the quaint, picturesque old town, a town which, like Asuncion, was founded by the conquistadors three-quarters of a century before our own English and Dutch forefathers landed in what is now the United States. The Jesuits then took practically complete possession of what is now Paraguay, controlling and Christianizing the Indians, and raising their flourishing missions to a pitch of prosperity they never elsewhere achieved. They were expelled by the civil authorities, backed by the other representatives of ecclesiastical authority, some fifty years before Spanish South America became independent. But they had already made the language of the Indians, Avanye, a culture tongue, reducing it to writing and printing religious books in it. Avanye is one of the most widespread of the Indian tongues, being originally found in various closely allied forms, not only in Paraguay, but in Uruguay and over the major part of Brazil. It remains here and there as a lingua, general at least, and doubtless in cases as an original tongue among the wild tribes. In most of Brazil, as around Para and around Sao Paulo, it has left its traces in place names, but has been completely superseded as a language by Portuguese. In Paraguay, it still exists side by side with Spanish as the common language of the lower people and as a familiar tongue among the upper classes. The blood of the people is mixed, their language dual. The lower classes are chiefly of Indian blood, but with a white admixture while the upper classes are predominantly white, with a strong infusion of Indian. There is no other case quite parallel to this in the annals of European colonization, although the Goanese in India have a native tongue and a Portuguese creed, while in several of the Spanish-American states the Indian blood is dominant and the majority of the population speak an Indian tongue, perhaps itself as with the Quichua, once a culture tongue of the archaic type. 
Whether in Paraguay one tongue will ultimately drive out the other, and if so, which will be the victor? It is yet too early to prophesy. The English missionaries in the Bible Society have recently published parts of the scriptures in Avignet, and in Asuncion a daily paper is published with the text in parallel columns, Spanish in Avignet, just as in Oklahoma there is a similar paper published in English and in the tongue which the extraordinary Cherokee chief Sequoia, a veritable Cadmu, made a literary language. The Avignet-speaking Paraguayan is a Christian, and as much an inheritor of our common culture as most of the peasant populations of Europe. He has no kinship with the wild Indian, who hates and fears him. The Indian of the Chaco, a pure savage, a bow-bearing savage, will never come east of the Paraguay, and the Paraguayan is only beginning to venture into the western interior, away from the banks of the river, under the lead of pioneer settlers like Ricard, whom, by the way, the wild Indians thoroughly trust, and for whom they work eagerly and faithfully. There is a great development ahead for Paraguay, as soon as they can definitely shake off the revolutionary habit and establish an orderly permanence of government. The people are a fine people. The strains of blood, white and Indian, are good. We walked up the streets of Concepcion and interestedly looked at everything of interest, at the one-story houses, their windows covered with gratings of fretted ironwork, and their occasional open doors giving us glimpses into cool inner courtyards with trees and flowers, at the two-wheel carts drawn by mules or oxen, at an occasional rider with spurs on his bare feet and his big toes thrust into the small stirrup rings, at the little stores and the warehouses for mat and hides. Then we came to a pleasant little inn, kept by a Frenchman and his wife, of old Spanish style, with its patio or inner court, but as neat as an inn in Normandy or Brittany. We were sitting at coffee around a little table, when in came the colonel of the garrison, for Concepcion is the second city in Paraguay. He told me that they had prepared a reception for me. I was in my rough hunting clothes, but there was nothing to do but to accompany my kind hosts, and trust to their good nature to pardon my shortcomings in the matter of dress. The colonel drove me about in a smart open carriage, with two good horses and a liveried driver. It was a much more fashionable turnout than would have been seen in any of our cities save the largest, and even in them probably not in the service of a public official. In all the South American countries there is more pomp and ceremony in connection with public functions than with us, and at these functions the liveried servants, often with knee-breeches and powdered hair, are like those seen at similar European functions. There is not the democratic simplicity which better suits our own habits of life and ways of thought. But the South Americans often surpass us, not merely in pomp and ceremony, but in what is of real importance, courtesy. In civility and courtesy we can well afford to take lessons from them. We first visited the barracks, saw the troops in the setting-up exercises, and inspected the arms, the artillery, the equipment. There was a German lieutenant with the Paraguayan officers, one of several German officers who are now engaged in helping the Paraguayans with their army. The equipments and arms were in good condition. The enlisted men evidently offered fine material, and the officers were doing hard work. 
It is worthwhile for anti-militarists to ponder the fact that in every South American country where a really efficient army is developed, the increase in military efficiency goes hand in hand with a decrease in lawlessness and disorder, and a growing reluctance to settle internal disagreements by violence. They are introducing universal military service in Paraguay. The officers, many of whom have studied abroad, are growing to feel an increased esprit de corps, an increased pride in the army, and therefore a desire to see the army made the servant of the nation as a whole, and not the tool of any faction or individual. If these feelings grow strong enough, they will be powerful factors in giving Paraguay what she most needs, freedom from revolutionary disturbance, and therefore the chance to achieve the material prosperity without which, as a basis, there can be no advance in other and even more important matters. Then I was driven to the city hall, accompanied by the intendant, or mayor, a German long settled in the country, and one of the leading men of the city. There was a breakfast. When I had to speak, I impressed into my service as interpreter a young Paraguayan who was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. He was able to render into Spanish my ideas on such subjects as orderly liberty and the far-reaching mischief done by the revolutionary habit, with clearness and vigor, because he thoroughly understood not only how I felt, but also the American way of looking at such things. My hosts were hospitality itself, and I enjoyed the unexpected greeting. We steamed on up the river. Now and then we passed another boat, a steamer, or to my surprise perhaps a barkentine or schooner. The Paraguay is a highway of traffic. Once we passed a big beef canning factory, ranches stood on either bank a few leagues apart, and we stopped at wood yards on the west bank. Indians worked around them. At one such yard the Indians were evidently part of the regular force. Their squaws were with them, cooking at queer open-air ovens. One small child had as pets a parrot and a young kawate, a kind of long-nosed raccoon. Loading wood, the Indians stood in a line, tossing the logs from one to the other. These Indians wore clothes. On this day we got into the tropics. Even in the heat of the day the deck was pleasant under the awnings. The sun rose and set in crimson splendor, and the nights, with the moon at the full, were wonderful. At night Orion blazed overhead, and the southern cross hung in the star-brilliant heavens behind us. But after the moon rose, the constellations paled, and clear in her light the tree-clad banks stood on either hand as we steamed steadily against the swirling current of the great river. At noon on the twelfth we were at the Brazilian boundary. On this day we here and there came on low conical hills close to the river. In places the palm groves broke through the belts of deciduous trees and stretched for a mile or so right along the river's bank. At times we passed cattle on the banks or sandbars, followed by their herders, or a handsome ranch house under a cluster of shady trees, some bearing a wealth of red and some a wealth of yellow blossoms. Or we saw a horse corral among the trees close to the brink, with the horses in it and a barefooted man in shirt and trousers leaning against the fence, or a herd of cattle among the palms, or a big tannery or factory, or a little native hamlet came in sight. We stopped at one tannery. The owner was a Spaniard, the manager a, quote, oriental, as he called himself, a Uruguayan of German parentage. The peons, or workers, who lived in a long line of wooden cabins back of the main building, were mostly Paraguayans, 
with a few Brazilians and a dozen German and Argentine foremen. There were also some wild Indians who were camped in the usual squalid fashion of Indians, who are hangers-on round the white man, but have not yet adopted his ways. Most of the men were at work, cutting wood for the tannery. The women and children were in camp. Some individuals of both sexes were naked to the waist. One little girl had a young ostrich as a pet. Waterfowl were plentiful. We saw large flocks of wild muscovy ducks. Our tame birds come from this wild species, and its absurd misnaming dates back to the period when the turkey and guinea pig were misnamed in similar fashion, our European forefathers taking a large and hazy view of geography, and including Turkey, Guinea, India, and Muscovy as places which, in their capacity of being outlandish, could be comprehensively used as including America. The Muscovy ducks were very good eating. Darters and cormorants swarmed. They waddled on the sandbars in big flocks and crowded the trees by the water's edge. Beautiful snow-white egrets also lit in the trees, often well back from the river. A full-foliaged tree of vivid green, its round surface crowded with these birds, as if it had suddenly blossomed with huge white flowers, is a sight worth seeing. Here and there, on the sandbars, we saw huge jabiru storks, and once a flock of white wood ibis among the trees on the bank. End of chapter 2, part 1